I must say, it's a blessing to be able to lend my voice on some pertinent and sometimes unusual insights. Hitting our 10th episode is a small little milestone for us here at Talk To Me, which is essentially Sashi, a producer, and myself. Uh, thinking back on why we started doing this, it's to strive to find new conversations that can add value to others, giving them perspectives and hopefully creating a moment of difference. One of the words I can use to categorize this is innovation. One of the hottest words that holds gravity in the 21st century. If there is one thing everyone can agree on is the importance of innovation to move businesses, society, and humanity forward. But do we really know what innovation is? And I'll be actually leveraging it the best way we can. That is what we would explore in this episode of Talk To Me. I was joined by West String Fellow, Howdo's founder and CEO, EHF Fellow, a former product and innovation executive at Target, PayPal, Visa, Rosetta Stone, and BigCommerce, uh, built Techstars Retail Accelerator, and he was a senior project manager at Amazon. And he joined us to discuss how to innovate as entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs. Since this is also the first time I was talking to Wes, we digged into his origin story from how he began with physical base work to his early days in a law firm, which sparked that constant pursuit of solving problems, how he practices it daily at Amazon, and how now he is educating the society with how to. Trust me, his story is laden with how one just needs to seize opportunities to solve problems, having a plan, focus, and patience to let innovation come alive. And curiously, we had a little discussion on misconceptions of some processes around lean and sprint-based innovation. That opened my eyes. And throughout the conversation, there was examples where good innovation can be practiced both in business and in employment. And at the very end, a little sneak peek or prediction on where we should focus our innovative energy. Have a listen. All right, 10th episode, and we're here talking about Ah, that's, that'll be a surprise. We'll, we'll, we'll reveal the topic in a short bit. You probably heard it in the intro, but I've got to talk to the guy who is with me right now, West Stringfellow, right? And this is, this is one of those cases where I really never got to meet the person I'm talking to just yet. I have a pre-conversation with the person I'm talking to just yet. But when he came on camera, he immediately, I saw him having musical instruments all around him. And I was like, wow, okay, this is going to be awesome conversation. But... Wes, maybe let's start with this. Since I'm a new to you, what you do, what you've been through, maybe let's talk a little bit of a origin story kind of thing, like a, <laughs> a whole Marvel universe. Let's see where Wes started from, kind of thing. So maybe let's talk about you. Like, where did you start from? Uh, how did you come to be what you're doing right now? Uh, so uh, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, raised in Orlando, Florida. Uh, moved to Boulder, Colorado when I was 12. And I'd say that's where I kind of grew up. Uh, I loved being outside. It was like my favorite thing in the world. All I wanted to do when I grew up was be outside. And then uh, my first couple jobs, one was a mountain park ranger where I ended up cutting off the end of my thumb. Uh, and then the next one was a construction worker where a truss fell off of a building and hit me in the head and I got a traumatic brain injury. And so I decided to go find safer places to work like inside. And uh, when I, I went, that was a sign. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I said too. <laughs> I, the thumb was the first and the head was the next. I think, yeah, that's, yeah, I was like, you. I don't need a third. I don't need a third. No more <laughs> workplace injuries for me. Right. Uh, and so then my first job was, uh, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer in mm -hmm. school and in, in my freshman year in college, uh, super aggressive about trying to get out of the Starbucks and Subway that I was working in and uh, found a law firm that I just launched in Denver and through a mutual friend, uh, actually it was one of my friend's fathers was building the law firm and they were a break off of this huge law firm. I wanted to be a lawyer. So I thought, oh, what a great opportunity to really learn the law, convince them to hire me as a college freshman. Uh, and by the end of my first day, uh, I was convinced that I didn't want to be a lawyer. It was so 
different to what I anticipated. So definitely different to what's on TV. Basically, I was running around filing documents all day and uh, I hated it. I truly just, it was so frustrating that I had to spend my entire summer and I, <laughs> inside for an unpaid internship that I had literally begged for. And all all day, I was just trying to find documents. They're either on a partner's desk or in their car, or someone had just left them on the shelf in the wrong place. And after about four weeks of that, I, I was so frustrated that I went to the library and said, how do you keep your books and documents like in order? How do you know where things go? And they pointed to a library management system and said, well, we have this computer system and it allows us to track all of this stuff. So I did research. This is 1997, so a little bit more difficult to use the internet to find re resources at that time, but figured out how to build an access database and build my own uh, library management system for the law firm. And uh, it, it changed how I engaged with my work completely. You know, it went from being, God, I can't stand this to like, I'm going to solve this problem and it's going to make my day better. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that mindset shift occurred, I started showing up at work early. I stayed late. I really was fascinated with trying to like solve this problem. And uh, by the end of the summer, I had built them uh, LMS mm -hmm. and they ended up paying me $3,000. So I went from being an unpaid legal intern who was filing paper to actually making for me $3,000. It was a ton of money at that time. Yeah. Uh, and, and it really hit me like there's, there's something in this computer industry, which was very nascent at the time, you know, 1997 is when Amazon went public. And uh, I really dedicated myself to learning how to program. Um, I was terrible at it. And uh, I, I started with with the jobs that I could get, largely database administration. I did that for literally seven years, much um, lots of data normalization. And, you know, back when databases needed babysitters and API needed babysitters. Uh, and ultimately worked my way up through a bunch of very small startups until I got to one called Alibris. They were the world's largest seller of used books. Mm -hmm. And my job was to integrate with all of their endpoint retailers like Barnes and Noble. Actually, most of the, most of the retailers that I would list are dead now. <laughs> but one of them ended up being Amazon. And when I integrated with Amazon's marketplace, uh, I realized that they had a very inefficient way of moving documents around and a very inefficient way of managing their inventory. And so I pointed that out to them. I was like, hey, I'll, I'll integrate the way you want me to, but just please beware, I think this is gonna break and this is how it'll break and this is what'll happen when it breaks. And uh, they were like, yeah, whatever. And then it broke exactly like I predicted. And uh, then they offered me a job. <laughs> and that changed everything. Uh, how, how did that conversation go? Thanks for breaking it. Here's a job. <laughs> well, no, so actually, uh, I, was, uh, I was at a warehouse party, a rave. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. At like uh, 2 a.m. in Soma. And uh, back when Soma in San Francisco was like a kind of you know, more of a derelict waste, wasteland of warehouses. I say wasteland, you know, lovingly. Uh, but uh, I remember getting a call like four times from my boss and he was like, I don't know where you are, or what you're doing, but you need to go to work. Hmm. And so I went to work and, and solved the problem on our end so that we would stop causing the problem on Amazon's end. Hmm. Uh, and then the next Monday, uh, my boss got a call from someone at Amazon and he came over to me and says, Amazon wants to meet with you in Seattle. And I think they're going to offer you a job and I think you should take it. And I was like, really? I didn't want to take it. I didn't want to move to Seattle. Uh, you know, at the time, Amazon didn't have the rep that it does now. It wasn't like the superstar place that everyone wanted to work. Um, and I went up there and I fell in love with the team immediately. Like the, the, they, they, I came into the room and they didn't want to know anything really about me. They just wanted to know about how to solve this problem. We dove super deep on the problem. We got really, really technical in the first five minutes. Uh, and the, the full conversation for, lasted about two or three hours. And all we did was problem solve. And I loved it. I loved it. They were like, how can we make this better? And I'd never been in a company that was so rigorously focused and disciplined mm -hmm. on improving what they were doing. Nice. And uh, at the end of that conversation, I was sold. I really wanted to, to join Amazon. I, I felt like, you know, my nature starting with the law firm was to identify problems and, and solve them. And I did that at every startup that I worked at. And then ultimately when Amazon hired me, I did that at Amazon. It was mm -hmm. super, super fun. Uh, I proposed one of their first billable web services, which was 
like Jeff Barr, who is Amazon's web service evangelist for ages, uh, was literally sitting around the corner for me. And I just walked over to him and I'm like, hey, I think there's data that Amazon has that you could sell. And he, he said, well, we've been trying to find a way to monetize some of our assets via API. Like this sounds like a good test case. And that ended up becoming like one of Amazon's first billable web services. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, through, through my time at Amazon, I, I was on the product team that launched the digital video product. I ran European Merchant Risk, where we reduced free cash flow loss by 98%. I proposed their first facility in, in India mm. and Bangalore and went to Bangalore and built it. It's now their largest analytics facility. Mm. Uh, and then I ran and their UK affiliate marketing program. And, the, and at Amazon, three years uh, during my time there, learned how to fix things, learned how to make really solid business cases with data, and really learned how to use data to understand the customer. Well, hold on, that was all in three years? Yeah. You did a lot in three years. Dude, Amazon moves fast. I, I mean, it, it, I, when I proposed the India facility, it was a week before Christmas. We were doing what's called OP1 or Operation Plan 1, where uh, you you submit what you're going to do for the next year. Mm. I was expressing extreme frustration with our inability to fight fraud in real time and suggested that we needed people who were awake in daylight hours and highly qualified. And uh, we're, we're, during the period at which you're was getting hammered by fraud. And if you just looked at a map, that was India. I mean, that's the time zone where that we needed people. And Joseph Sparoche was the head of what's called TRMS, Transra Transaction Risk Management Services at the time. He's now the head of Microsoft's AI. Um, but literally six seconds after I said, I think we should open an office in India, he said, okay, go to India. And like, <laughs> I'd never been to India. I had no idea how to open an office. Uh, but the I arrived in India on uh, Christmas Eve, and I was there for six months. Wow. Okay. Like one week. One week from when I said I think we should do it to I'm doing it. You know, and that and that to me was the best aspect of Amazon is there's this culture of getting stuff done that uh, Jeff Bezos really put into everyone you know the there's these you walk around amazon at least when i was there mm. and you'd see these old old crappy worn out nike shoes and they would be on top of someone's desk and and that was the just do it award and that's when uh, someone in the business saw a problem and just fixed it and it was one of the biggest awards you could get from amazon because at the time jeff would give it to you right. uh and you know that that i carried that culture with me uh beyond Amazon into Visa, where I was the vice president of e-commerce and uh, innovation, and then on to PayPal, where I was the senior mm. director of innovation and ultimately ran on the product side, the global platform, uh, launched their point of sale. And I was the chief product officer in Rosetta Stone, helped them transition from box product to digital product, bought mm. several companies and built several new offices and repositioned the company to be more of a B2B platform and a B2C app. Uh, then it went on to big commerce, helped them flip their strategy and find a new market segment, raise 50 million. And then uh, ultimately uh, decided to build my own company, mm. which uh, target it brought me into them as their first entrepreneur in residence. Mm -hmm. When I joined Target as their EIR, uh, I asked to sit in the strategy department and learn as much as I could about Target as they you know, now owned my company and were my, ba like my baby was in their hands. I wanted to make sure that they were doing the right thing with it. And uh, I took some of the money that they funded my company with mm -hmm. and built Target what I thought was a strategy that was more kind of reliant on data and best practice that I had learned at places like Amazon and PayPal and other places. Um, I printed out 300 copies of that and handed it out to every VP and up at Target and then got a call from Brian Cornell, who's the CEO, and uh, had a really interesting conversation with him that ultimately ended up making me the vice president of innovation at Target. Mm. Uh, and once I was in that role, I proposed and built a Techstars accelerator at Target. And so at Target, I had three, three gigs, uh, CEO of my company, VP Innovation, and running the Techstars Accelerator. And then Target closed my company without like literally weeks after they told me that they were going to give me a very large amount of funding for my mm -hmm. company. And days after we'd hired tons of people from Amazon, uh, they just decided in a board meeting to close my company. And, and that was it for me. I couldn't, couldn't stay in that environment anymore. Right. Uh, and at around that time, 
uh, there was, that was 2017 in 2016, mm. I had, uh, kind of woken up to the division in America and was pretty, mm. pretty appalled by it. I didn't realize how much people disagreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started researching why the division existed, built a huge foundation. I hired a team of five researchers independently and, and mm-hmm. they went and like, I, I said, I want to know every fact associated with any topical area. That's like any substantive area of each presidential candidate's platform. Right. And what I learned is, you know, the country was filled with systemic inequality. The country mm-hmm. was filled with a lack of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having lived overseas for eight years, my first thought was, okay, well, if America's having this problem, how big is it globally? Expanded our research and looked around the world. And, you know, in almost every Western democracy, we're seeing increased division, increased xenophobia, racism, homophobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, mm. uh, you know, pick a phobia or ism that is negative and it's happening right now. Right. Uh, and for me, that was kind of a call to action. I couldn't go back to business as usual because I believe business as usual is creating these problems. I believe because companies can't innovate. Mm. They take the money that should be used to build new products, build new services, expand their corporate P&L, diversify and stabilize the company, which would then allow them to take care of their employees, pay taxes, do all the things which create social welfare. Uh, And, uh, you know, having been at many large companies and led innovation at those companies, the, the thing that stood out to me is most of these companies simply don't know how to innovate. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to get from A to B and then ultimately into market. Right. Uh, and they don't train their employees. They, they, they hire people for really specialized roles and they keep them in their box. And so I decided to teach the world what every, everything that I learned. And so I created HowDo. Mm-hmm. HowDo is free open source innovation training. Uh, it's self-guided. I hired another research team and we did 40,000 hours of research into innovation best practice. We created uh, 6,000 facts, turned those into articles. All those articles are for free on how to. And then the next thing that we're doing right now is filming a free video series. And then I'm going to be available for the next year to answer anyone's questions so that the whole world has free innovation training and knows what to do. So when you say ask any questions, I mean, someone right now could reach out to West and ask him a question and you'd be answering back to that person. That is correct. Wow. All right. You said something quite curious just now. People don't know what innovation is. So maybe let, let's try to answer that question because even, even I don't know if I've got the right idea what innovation is. Um, when you talked about your story, a lot of what really grabbed me was how you really like to solve problems. Love it. Yeah. And I think I shared that point of view of what innovation is as the first part of it, trying to solve a problem. But my other view of innovation is ensuring that people get the experience that you've solved that problem in the first place. Yes. I think that's very much implied in the definition, but not necessarily stated. So the actual definition of innovate is to make changes in something established, especially by introducing new methods, ideas, or products. Mm. And you know, the, there's an implication there that the change has been made. Mm. Uh, what we see in the research is that very often changes are unsuccessful. So mm. McKinsey, you know, one of the world's best management consulting firms uh, said, I think two years ago, they did a study that 70% of change management or, you know, any sort of attempted change in corporation corporations fails, mm. which means that change has a 30% success rate. And then Harvard did a study where they studied new products going into market and they realized that 95% of new products fail. Mm. So if there's a 30% success rate in changing your company and a 5% success rate in launching new products, Mm. you know, it's somewhat rational that most companies would avoid investing in innovation because the success rate is so low. Whereas, you know, if you buy your stock back, Mm -hmm you have a hundred percent certainty that it's going to give your shareholders money and it's going to secure your bonus as an executive. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think innovation is part of the solution. I see innovation right. the discipline of putting new things into market. Mm. The other part of it is entrepreneurialism. Right. And, you know, entrepreneurs have this real, romantic mythology we tend to idealize them and they, be, they become you know 
somewhat demigods like Elon Musk, you know, he points at something and it gets more valuable. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Bezos enters the segment and all he has to do is say he's going into healthcare and every healthcare stock in America falls. So like an entrepreneur though, the actual definition of an entrepreneur is a person who organizes and operates a business right. taking on greater than normal financial risk to do so. Right. That's it. Mm. So it has nothing to do with business ownership. Mm. Uh, it has everything to do with taking a little bit more financial risk. And the reason that I think it's important to combine innovation with entrepreneurship is that innovation by itself only has a th 5 to 30% success rate, which means that it is inherently risky relative to many alternatives. And for when you're thinking about how to spend your capital, are you going to put it in something with 70% success or 5 to 30% success? We're going to put it with 70% success. Yeah. And so the entrepreneur part is super important because in order to innovate, you have to take risks. And in order to take risks, you are being an entrepreneur, whether or not you're inside a business or running your own business. Hmm. And so I, I think of entrepreneurial innovation as the discipline that I'm trying to teach at How Do, which is how do we teach people to run their businesses with greater risk by introducing new products into market and taking every possible step to mitigate the risk, to eliminate the chance of failure. Right. It's curious you're saying that because the last podcast we did was I was talking to a friend of mine named Bloom Gauss, he's from South Africa, and he's very much into this whole entrepreneurship space. And we kind of came to this thing where, like you said, entrepreneurship is this romantic thing where entrepreneurs in some form or way have this drive within them this gut feel that they want to solve a particular problem to save the world kind of thing yep that 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 drives them to take that risk but going back to what you said just now so both sides are risky right because i've i've been an entrepreneur myself so i know how that feels like sometimes it's a leap of faith to create something which you have no idea is going to work out or not <laughs> yep right and and i think like what drove me or what continued driving me towards that? And this is where then I got my own culture of innovation or entrepreneurship within where I'm working is focus on that problem you want to solve. You are always going to start something. Like uh, I remember that we had an issue and with uh, the company that I had, we had an issue here in Malaysia when it came to music distribution. And especially when the world was digitizing already, we didn't quite understand how to do it well here. So one of the problems I wanted to solve was how do I create access to distribution, music distribution to all these other musicians who are out there? What, what is the mechanism? Platform's already there, but the mechanism mm. was missing. I knew it was a risky option because it was a scenario where it didn't exist in the market at that point. And this was in uh, 2000 and this is not too long ago. This was 2014, mm. actually, not too long ago. So it didn't exist very maturely in the market in Malaysia, but I took a leap of faith at that point and said that, you know what, let's just try it anyway. I know I don't know if I'm going to make a living out of this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay my bills with this, but <laughs> I know that I I'm, know that solving, well. <laughs> yeah, I'm solving a problem. And if anything, I'll take back that as that feel good that I have that I solved the problem. But um Lo and behold, by focusing on just solving the problem and not focusing on, am I going to pay the bills? Then that kind of opened up that innovative side of me. Like I was always looking at, you know, what's this next problem to solve? What's this next problem to solve? Get it there, get it there, get it there, bit by bit, bit by bit. That's so, right. Yeah. I think you're right on the data thing. And that's eye-opening, 35% as a, as a whole. And I also saw that, that study from McKinsey and I saw a few others where they kind of showed this ratio of investments in companies and how R&D, as much as they like to say innovation as the, that sexy thing that they keep on doing just to raise stock prices up, that's only probably about 14% of how much they spend their, their yearly cap at. The rest of it is spent on acquisitions, shares. Yes. yes. And, and, and I, I was boggled by that, but then I understood exactly like what you said they go, uh, their main goal is sustainability. So they're going to do what's necessary to sustain the business and make the business profitable. R&D is a risk. Very yeah, big. sure. You, there's a one in a thousand chance you may make something which completely redefines the business, but that's one in a thousand. 
Well, first of all, let me touch on something you said. One of the things that you said I really liked, which was you felt, right? You felt mm-hmm. that this was a problem. And you, if you just focused on solving that problem, you know, you found that it was easier to kind of keep making progress. And I do think that entrepreneurship and innovation is a feeling. <clears throat> I don't think it's a rational pursuit. You can't say it's a rational pursuit because you know, if it was rational, everyone would be doing it and succeeding. But the reality is most people are failing. And so because it's inherently risky, it's inherently somewhat irrational. And for me, I find just like you, mm-hmm. that the feeling of, hey, I'm solving this problem. I believe this problem should be solved. And I am I have measurable evidence as I progress towards the ultimate solution that I am incrementally learning more and more, solving all the tiny little problems you have to solve on the way. Mm-hmm. And that feeling is the only thing that, that I'm the feeling that I can solve the problem right. is the only thing that keeps me going through right. all of that hardness. Wow. Um, I'm glad we shared that. I think, I think for those listening, like if you are probably thinking in your space itself and maybe let's, let's bring it to a less risky picture. And this is where I think that whole term of entrepreneurship comes into play, where if you're working anywhere, who says you can't be an entrepreneur with what you do? You can't be innovative with what you do. 100%, yeah. It is you adopting the mindset like what I do is like this little business or this little problem that I got to solve. And if I keep on choosing to solve these problems, your example was perfect. um, That your early example of how when you were working at a law firm and you were just doing files and files and paperwork and paperwork and you decided to go to the library and find out how to solve it. But you were doing it in the employee. Okay, well, you weren't getting paid at that point. In no, time, not at the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but well, if someone's being employed, they can think it that way. Like you're finding how to solve a problem in your space. And that's already a form of innovation. I agree. It, it definitely, by definition is, it's also, it's also a form of entrepreneurship and mm. like by definition, mm. but, it, and, and I think that's one of the things that is kind of unique about the time that we're living in, you know, for so many years, people have focused on like lean startup as the mm. way to innovate. And, you know, lean says do some amount of market research, but really go as quickly as possible to get a MVP in front of your customer and then iterate once you're in the market, et cetera. Mm. Um, that's produced 95% failure, right? I mean, that methodology fails, uh, literally. And you see the companies that succeed like Amazon. Uh, I'll just say this, no product that I have built successfully at, at a company that builds products as a business like Amazon or PayPal uh, or even Target None of them use lean, really. I mean, there are aspects of the project that can be lean. If you're going to deploy a feature, if you're going to test aspects of a product, sure. Uh, maybe, do as maybe, as sorry, sorry about that, Wes, but maybe for our listeners, what, what does lean mean? I, I know what it means, but what does lean mean for the rest of them who are listening? Well, it's, uh, it's a great question. So there's lean, which is kind of an intent, continuous improvement paradigm, which very few people actually mean that when they use the word lean. What they're generally referring to is uh, Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup. And uh, The Lean Startup is a, full, like I'd, I'd call it an innovation management philosophy. Uh, it was built off some of Steve Blank's work. And, and I think Steve Blank's work is, is uh, way more robust than the Lean Startup. The Lean Startup is like a uh, quick and dirty guide on how to get your product into market. Generally, if you think you have an idea, try to find a way to build a minimally viable product, which is the smallest numbers of features to test the value proposition, and then build that product and get it in front of your customers. And once it's in front of your customers, start iterating with them, meaning that you put it out, you put V1 out as quickly as possible, get V1.1, V1.2, V1.3, you know, keep, keep changing the product to adapt it to the needs of your customer. You know, I, that's lean conceptually. Um, the iteration is like meaning once the product's in market, that's just true for all products. You have to change them once they're, they're in market. Uh, every product that's successful evolves. Mm. The dangerous part of lean is the kind of rush to market. Right. In this current business context, let's be real. 
There are approximately five or seven companies who control 100% of a consumer's digital interface. Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, mm. Amazon, uh, maybe Twitter, but they're mm. quite small. Uh, mm. Alibaba, for sure. Mm. Um, but those small number of companies are the access point to, for digital products to get to a customer. There's, mm. There is literally no other way to get to a customer. Mm. Um, and when you think about trying to compete in that environment, you know, they have, those companies have lifted the floor required for development. So, mm. you know, when I started, you had to provision servers, you had to do incredible amounts of work just to keep the servers alive. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, and if you had a spike in traffic, you had to manually go over and connect more servers or open up more servers or reallocate storage or reallocate bandwidth. And this was all manual. You know, the, the great thing about it's so amazing. I know what you're talking about because I've physically seen that happen in front of me before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that was my job for ages. And, and, and it's, it, it blows my mind how efficient technology has become. Mm. You know, it's gotten to the point where you don't need to worry about anything in the back end. Mm. You only really worry about the scripting languages on the front end. Mm. And a lot of people, you know, think they're developers because they've learned JavaScript. And, they, you know, in, in many ways they are, they're application developers. Mm. But the real value that, that if you look at uh, market cap and you look at, multiples on public markets uh, and you look at valuations from Silicon Valley uh, mm. startups, mm. the companies that are getting the really high valuations are not the top layer application. Mm. They are the bottom layer capability. Right. They are the ability to store and move data or mm. their content distribution networks or their provisioning software or their DevOps software. Mm. You know, the, it used to be, we had to write out product management requirements in, um, you know, Excel. Like, I remember mm. one product that we built at PayPal had like literally like 5,000 rows. And then we'd hand that to designers and then we'd workshop that. And then we'd hand that to developers and they develop it. Now you can just mock stuff up in Webflow and get it yeah. online in minutes, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that the, the the convenience factor is masking a real big disintermediation for mm. a lot of businesses. Mm. Uh, the ease at which apps can be built, uh, you, you don't need to look further than the number of apps in either the Google Play or the uh, Apple iTunes store for apps. Mm. You know, there are literally over 4 million apps. <laughs> like, yeah. Anything that there's 4 million of is easy to do. Mm. So uh, the, the, therefore, less valuable because right. it's easy to build a competitor. Mm -hmm. And the real value is deep in the technology stack. And that's where people just don't want to go. Mm -hmm. Big companies just rely on Amazon. It's incredible how many large companies rely on Amazon infrastructure to drive core processes. I mean, the mm -hmm. American CIA <laughs> oh. uses Amazon really? to store. Yeah. I, I thought they had like their own thing going on. No. Amazon. Wow. Amazon and Microsoft. Yeah, actually, Amazon is, if I believe, I believe currently is suing the Pentagon for favoring Microsoft for a huge hundred billion dollar contract. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, even the government in America outsources its IT. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, the challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs face is they see Facebook as an app and they mm -hmm. don't see Facebook as an extraordinarily powerful platform. Mm -hmm. And so they go to Amazon and they build like a Facebook clone or some sort of new social widget app, whatever on AWS and minutes. And they think, well, I've done this. I've, I've, I've taken my idea and I've gotten it to market and now I'm iterating on it. And maybe they get initial traction, but if that scales, big if, if that scales, there's 95% chance it won't. But if mm. they're part of that 5%, mm. the next investments are enormous in terms of customer acquisition, in terms of breaking your reliance on uh, any of the big tech companies. Like it's, it's almost impossible to get enough money to build a real competitor that's going to be worth real money on Wall Street. Right. If your business is, or any public market, if your business is re entirely reliant on 
other people's businesses to exist, then you are making them rich, not yourself mm. rich. Mm. And, and I think that's the, the, the paradox in the world today is we have to find, yes, it's really easy to build businesses, but the vast majority of those businesses don't make the entrepreneurs a great deal of money. They don't make the teams a great mm. deal of money. Mm. To build really valuable businesses, we have to find the white space in the economy that just completely empty voids. Mm. And those voids are the areas where we should be exploring and developing foundational technologies because right. those are worth a lot of money. And we should be developing new technical capabilities because mm. those can open up entirely new industries. Like when mm. I'm so sad that Facebook bought Oculus, that Apple's building mm. a really awesome 4K uh, VR headset, yeah. that Google's doing the same. I mean, because that's such a beautiful open space that should be occupied by innovators. And instead, it's just the big companies that already control everyone's interface right. adding another interface. And, mm -hmm. and as you said, you know, a lot of companies spend their big companies spend their time acquiring small yeah, companies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the companies that they acquire, they're acquiring one of two things either a team, which mm -hmm. in many instances is exactly what they're acquiring. There's mm -hmm. a team that's extraordinarily capable. Um, that team didn't want to go work for an, a big company because they are extraordinarily capable. They may have built an interesting piece of technology that's pretty inconsequential to someone like Google mm -hmm. uh, but or Facebook or Amazon or Apple or Microsoft or any of them. But the team is hard to get without kind of satiating their ego. So mm -hmm. in order to get that team on board, you need to give them millions of dollars and you know effectively buy their idea. But once you get them in house, like they're employees, and and so the the idea of you know okay, I'm going to build a startup and a big company is going to buy it. Yeah, that's totally true. If you're like a PhD from MIT and mm -hmm. you've built some interesting technology to demonstrate that you're capable of executing, and that aligns with the big corporations. Uh, immediate needs in terms of what they're looking to do with their product roadmap. Like right. that's true. Right. And if you've done that research and hit that target, amazing. Mm. But if you're just using lean startup and building an app on top of AWS and hoping mm. that you're going to be the next, whatever, you know, that is not, that hope mm. is not a strategy. And that yeah. hope is what produces 95% failure. And that to me is why we need to, and why it's, it's literally why I'm open sourcing. How do it's, it's, right. There are very few innovation theories that incorporate an actual rigorous process, looking mm. at the market, looking at the customer, looking at the competition, mm. deeply understanding their capabilities and their motivations, and then deciding through customer testing what could be built and should be built. Once okay. you have that framework, you've eliminated a lot of the risk up front and you can narrow your focus to just the areas that are actual opportunity opportunity areas, mm. not these like crowded vanity areas. Like I can't tell you how many, oh, at least 10 entrepreneurs, because I'm in the Techstars network, because right. I have a Techstars affiliation, I get a lot of outreach from entrepreneurs. At least 10 entrepreneurs have reached out since the start of the pandemic mm -hmm. and asked me if I wanted to invest in a at-home fitness app. At least 10 people. And, oh, wow. <laughs> right? And I'm not, it's not like I'm special and I get like an extraordinary amount of people reaching out to me. I mean, I don't. Right. It's not, and it's not like I'm in any way in shape. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm probably the last person who would use a fitness app. But the, the thought process that's mm. going through in the entre entrepreneur's head is the process that's worrying because they're thinking that, hey, if, if I just get this app, I've already, I, I, you know, I, learned how, I learned JavaScript or I learned React Native, I built an app, uh, it's live, I've got a thousand users, now give me mm. money. It's like, well, no, no, no. That's what Lean says to do, mm. right? Lean says to get there and then ask for money. No, 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 no. I asked them, what's your plan? How are you going to compete when Apple rolls out a competitive product, when Peloton enters this sector, when, yeah. you know, any one of the major players with hundreds of millions of dollars is going to enter the sector? And their question is always like, oh, we'll figure it out because that's what Lean says to do. Right. No, you will not figure it out. Like your day, the, the reality of operating a business is, mm. you know, mm. is that once the product is live and you have real customers, your entire day is consumed by, by keeping it. That, exactly. Right. Yeah. You're not going to figure anything out other than how to stay in the moment unless yeah. you have a ton of capital 
And that capital is going to come at a premium if, if you don't have a real plan. Like if you go to investors and you say to them, hey, I've got the next fitness app. Yeah, you may be able to raise a million dollars or $2 million. And that sounds like a lot of money to most people. But the reality is to scale that product to any relevance, you're going to need a hundred million, a couple hundred million. Yeah. That's what it takes to acquire customers and com compete with every other voice out there. And, and most importantly, compete for time. Users are so time deprived right now. And yeah. we spend so much time on YouTube, so much time mm -hmm. on Facebook, so much time on TikTok that we're not actually that open to doing new things. And if we're, if you already have an established pattern of doing a thing, like let's say working out using your app, then the person building the app needs to migrate the user. And, and if I, I ask them simple questions, what is the primary value proposition that's going to get someone to migrate from your app versus to your app versus every other app out there? Mm. And they'll say something very generic, like, Oh, well, you know, ours is a marketplace and they can get their own blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, you can tell that they're grasping at straws right. as to giving an extraordinarily clear answer, which would be something more like, well, we've looked at the 70 apps in this category. We see that they all have a business model that relies on a certain price point, or they have a customer acquisition model that relies on a certain channel mm. or you know, some factor like that. And probably multiple factors for the different competitors in the sector. We're shooting at this area over here that's not occupied. We're shooting mm. at a target that no one is shooting at. And when we hit that target, the Tam Sam Som, you know, that that market size mm. is is compelling and growing and is willing to buy the product. You know, like that that's a good answer. Right. Almost no one that I talk to has that answer. That's curious. That's curious that that you said the few things that you said that I'm going I'm going to follow up with a question on that, but something you said before this about lean MVP and, and also that whole, that word of leverage, right? Leverage. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the reason why I'm using that is also because I've seen this happen a lot and um, about the lean MVP thing is curious. You open my mind to it because I, I'm actually a person who uses that to some end, that whole lean MVP methodology. I actually, but I, I use it a little differently and probably this could be a, a, a different way to see it. I use it as a way to, get as close to the right thing as possible. So example, if I, if I want to create something and everybody will start worrying about, okay, do we have this resource? Do we have this ability? Do we have that, that creative component? Do we have the tools? No, no, no. Let's bring it down to the most minimal viable product you can build, but not the shoddiest product you can build. Yeah. That's and That's a very important distinction. Yeah. That, that there is a huge difference there. Yeah. Correct. So it's like what with the resources you have, what can you build that you can happily take it out to your customers and your customers be happy to receive it? And you know that you're doing it for a customer base that is there. So I think that that is one way that I'm applying lean, but interesting that you mentioned that. And actually, you're right. This the product space, whatever it could be, whether it's an app, whether it's a physical product anything that you want to innovate. And I think that's the, the mistake people are making as well. Innovation doesn't mean iteration. Innovation doesn't mean you're just taking something that is there because it's popular, because it's trendy. I'm going to just adjust it a little bit because I know there's a market space there. I think that's wrong because that exactly, you mentioned it. People go after a market space that is already active and populated. Where are you going to find people who wants to get or take the things that you've created? That's that's one part of it. And I think the other part of it you mentioned was this whole culture of leveraging, which is, all right, I'm going to start something, but I don't have all the pieces. Let me get this from this company. Let me get that from this company. Let me get that from this company. Let me get that from this company. So in the end, your product is just an idea. Right. You don't, right. You don't, you don't have the... There's no foundation. There's no foundation. There's no, no, nothing you can grasp at exactly what you say, grasping at straws. You don't have anything. You have a combination of what everybody else has. So ultimately all you have is an idea. Yeah. Or, or I see so I agree with that. And I see so many companies build a feature. They're like, Oh, I'm going to do this thing uh, for social. And, and you know, it's a feature for Facebook. It's mm. a feature for Twitter. It's probably a hackathon away from actually existing at those companies. And you know, the, the, the lack of education around the consequences of failing 
to innovate, I think is what drives people blindly to build things quickly and put it out there. Mm. Like if you build, if you take the limited time that you have and the limited capital that you have where you could actually pursue building a business and you don't think about what it's going to take to get that business to scale, you just think about getting that business near your customer and starting to iterate, Mm. you're going to, as the stats prove, 95% of the time, fail. Mm. And the, the, my definition of failure is the decision to stop iterating. You know, failure doesn't happen until the entrepreneur says, I can't keep going. There's no more capital, et cetera. Mm. You know, having coached so many entrepreneurs who have gone through that failure, it's emotionally devastating. Mm. It knocks you on your butt and you stay down for a long time. It also damages your credibility. It's really hard to go back in front of investors and say, oh, this time I'm right after having just been really wrong. And most people, when they get involved in an idea that they do feel strongly about, having not done the research, they start to get become affected by sunk cost bias. Like, well, I already put so much time and money into it. I got to keep going. And that bias drives a lot of entrepreneurs to just in literally into the ground and then they go get a job and then they give up on the game of entrepreneurship. Mm. And I think the better model (laughs) truly is at a minimum, get some experience in the type of companies that you want to build. Mm -hmm. Like I, I didn't know, I never thought of myself as being good enough at anything to be an entrepreneur. And it wasn't until I got it to Amazon um, which you know is a huge technology company, and realized that I could bring my ideas to life by using data to convince people that they should also believe in the idea, and then getting a big group of people together and going together as a team mm-hmm. to executives, which are in- effectively investors, right. and saying, we think that there's an opportunity in this space, and we'd like to drive in that direction. Right. And the And the executives say, yes, and here's money and go. Mm. And, you know, I've done that at every company that I've worked for, proposed new products, teams, divisions, offices, uh, P&Ls. And uh, by doing that in all those companies, and then ultimately by doing it myself as an entrepreneur, I found it so much easier in terms of the story that I experienced versus the story that everyone else experiences. Mm. Everyone else goes to Silicon Valley or goes to investors with a prototype. I went to folks with a plan Mm. and said, if you give me the money, here's how I'm going to spend the money. Here's how I'm going to de-risk every spend. Here's how we can phase gate your investment so that you're protected as an investor. Here's the acceptance criteria for every additional round. Here's how my plan has multiple forks in the road so that if we're wrong on this assumption, well, we have fallback assumptions. There's Mm. a degradation path that still leads to a very high multiple product or very valuable solution. Mm. And you know, that conversation with an investor is exactly what they want to hear. Mm. And, and so many times, uh, you know, people forget that the investor is a customer too. Like if you want to build a business, you have to talk to the investors. And if you want to talk to investors, you should probably talk their language. You should tell them the things that they need to hear to make a critical assessment of your company in order to determine whether or not they should ultimately give you tens to hundreds of millions of dollars, Mm. which is what it takes to actually build a business. Actually, I also want to jump off on that. Not only if you're thinking about it from a business standpoint or an investor standpoint, again, I want to pull it back to people who are at offices doing jobs, who yeah, are innovating. Like, yeah. Their bosses are their customers. Their bosses yes, 100%. Are people, yeah, 100%. They're, the bosses are thinking in numbers. They're thinking in numbers. Like, how much of my resources am I going to spend here? This is people, time, and money resource. So if you go to them with a prototype, sure. I see something, I don't really know what this is going to do. But Correct. Exactly. Like you said, if you go to them with a plan and a foolproof plan with all these things in place, you assure them that, okay, I'm going, I'm assured that I can spend this resource on your plan because I know one way or another, there is going to be a result at the end. That's right. There's going That's to be right. a return on that expectation and investment at the end. Yes, uh, it's totally right. And, and I think... 
again, you know, Lean tells us, as you as you said, people go to them with a product. Look what look what I designed. Look what I made. Mm-hmm. Neat. Uh, instead of there's, I think, two to four billion dollars in free cash flow we can create by pursuing this vector. I don't know what the answer is, but I know that there's money there. I know it's growing. I know our competitors are going there, or I know they haven't gone there and that ultimately we will strategically need to get there. So let's start figuring out how to make this investment. And the best example where I really learned this lesson was at Amazon when I was building the digital video product. So I was on the back end again, uh, because <laughs> that's just where I, you know, I specialized. And so I was doing all the metadata and um, kind of cataloging all the digital video assets that we were going to launch with. And I was one of two product managers for the product, which again, think about that. For the Amazon's entire digital video product, there were two product managers, one on the front end, one on the back end. Mm. That's how efficient Amazon is. Mm. Um, And we launched Amazon Digital Video in 2006. When was the first time you used Amazon Digital Video? Um, I'm not a native Amazon user here. In this part of the world, Amazon... Don't have it? Okay. (laughs) In America, it was roughly around 2014, 2015 that it actually started to take off, really started to become famous around 2018, 2019. There was a massive, nearly decade and a half that Amazon iterated on that product Mm. before it actually became viable. And when it became viable, it was dominant because they had spent a decade and a half solving those problems. And, you know, that that's success, right? The iPhone, the iPhone, probably one of the most successful products in the world. Mm. Uh, when it was launched, it was the product of several iterations of iPods. Then it got to iPhone. And then we're on what, version 12? And yeah. there's at least five flavors to each version. Mm-hmm. So every one of those iterations is what makes iPods or the uh, iPhone successful. Mm-hmm. But the iPhone took 10 years to get to 50% of the smart, smartphone market. 10 years of Apple, Apple with billions of dollars and the world's most fun product that everyone stares at nearly all day now took 10 years to get to 50%. And entrepreneurs are like, I've got a cute interface that someone liked. You know, it's like, no, what is your actual plan to make it 10 years so that you can actually make some real money? I think you hit something really important over there. Everyone is rushing. Everyone is rushing. Everyone is rushing to like, okay, we've got to create something right here, right now. Yes, sometimes you get that moment of magic. If all the stars align, you get the moment of magic. But otherwise, I see people trying to bring something out within two weeks nowadays, which... That's lean! That's lean startup! That's just terrible! <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm, I'm completely aware of the whole fact that, you know, if you're not willing to spend the time on it, and, and this is not just two weeks' time, this may take years before years. you get something. Years! Years before you get something which actually, actually is... I mean, okay, let's let's look at that that the whole story of Oliver and Wilbur Wright about flight in the first place. They right. Didn't, they didn't do that in two weeks. If you follow no. the story, it was years of them working in sheds, trying out, trying out, giving up, almost giving up. And after that, finally. And then and then from there flying to other humans flying yeah. was a solid 50 years. Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> So, so uh, I know like Sashi is sending us a note already that we, we were reaching like the end point. So I want to ask you this question. It was really good that we explored all this. And I hope that for the listeners, like especially when you're thinking about innovation, when you're thinking about entrepreneurship or you're thinking about intrapreneurship, these are really good mindset processes to have. Uh, the, the things that Wes has sort of explored and uh, I got to jump off from, but you kind of said something just now, target right? What is that target that people can look at right now in your mind? Like maybe top five targets people can look at. You mentioned one already, foundational technologies. Instead of the top layer app technology, the foundational technologies could be one of them. Yes. Yes. What could be others that people could look at? And this could be the trend for like like this next 10 years. Let me put it this way. 
anyone who's managing more than a billion dollars probably spent at least $10 million researching where they should put that billion dollars. Mm. And I want to find that insight because that's the jumping off point for all of the research I should subsequently do. And so I look at people like Kathy Wood at ARK Invest. I think she is just a brilliant forward-looking investor. She's looking at augmented reality, biotechnology, clean energy, artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence applications. Um, I'd look at people like where are... Uh, A16Z, where investing, where is Sequoia investing? And, and the thing is, these companies, like these venture capital firms and investment banking firms, on a daily basis, advertise where they are putting their money. They tell you, we're putting our money here. And people are like, I'm going to build a fitness app. And it's like, go look at any credible investor. Are they putting money in fitness apps? No. So, you know, my advice to anyone and everyone would be, Find the best investors in their category. You know, Ray Dalio, Kathy Wood on the hedge funds. Dalio's stepping out of the game, but anyway, he's brilliant and what he's created at Bridgewater is brilliant. Uh, look at the best venture capital firms. Look at the best Wall Street analysts. And then and then go do your own research. Go, go find the sector analysis. Find the experts on Twitter. Find the experts on Reddit. Find the experts on LinkedIn, wherever they may be. And l- look at what they're looking at and talking about. And from there, you can start to get a perspective on where capital is flowing. Mm-hmm. And, and when I think about trying to build a business, you can either put your boat into a river and paddle up that river as hard as you can, or you can put your boat in the biggest, widest, fastest moving river, and it will just go. Mm-hmm. And it, where capital is currently going, that's the biggest, widest, fastest river. You should right. put your boat in that river and figure out where your jumping off point is. Nice sidestep. You didn't quite say like what would be it, but I think that's a better point. Like instead of trying to chase after trends, which is the problem, do the research and find out where people are investing money and energy towards. Right. Because then you know, um, and it kind of crossed my mind as you said that if it was me and let's say I'm not a person who wants to start a business right now, but I would still do this research because it will tell me, is that an area that I'm interested to get into? Very right. You have to look at multiple areas before you even find something that maybe you emotionally connect with, Yeah. you know? And, and, and I think, you know, the reality of our world right now is that we're so interconnected. You know, there's at least uh, one estimate I read is there's at least half a billion entrepreneurs on the planet. And given that the platforms are billion, half a billion, half a billion entrepreneurs on the planet. And so if there's that many people and you're competing with five companies to get to the customer, right? You have to go through five companies to get to the customer. That's a massive choke point. Mm. So finding new technologies that aren't controlled by those big companies, those are beautiful areas for to explore, both in terms of ideas and in strategies. On that note, actually, I think that is so far one of the best advice throughout this whole talk. That was a quite a lot of bits that we got there. But for everyone else, instead of trying to chase after trends, let's chase after where, as Wes put it, the biggest stream and the flow of the biggest stream is growing. Then take your boat and see if you'd like to put your boat into that stream, sit in it, and you'll have a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Wes, I, I usually leave this part of the, the podcast for if there's anything you want to shout out, you want people to know about what you're doing, uh, how they can interact with you. Go ahead. Anything you want to shout out to anybody? Sure. Uh, well, first off, shout out to Abra for getting introducing us and getting us on this podcast. And um, yeah, please, if, if y'all are interested, if anyone listening is interested in innovation or entrepreneurship, I put everything that I know and everything that I could afford to reach research on howdo.com. It's entirely free. You don't need to log in. I don't want your data. I just want you to learn how to innovate. Don't get a certificate. Certificates are literally tokens. Mm. Instead of walking to your boss with a certificate and said, give me more responsibility, walk to your boss with a business plan and say, give me more money so that I can prove to you that I deserve more responsibility. And that is what howdo will teach you how to do for free. Thanks for that. So uh, we, what we will do is when this podcast comes out, we'll put the link to how do as well. I think it's pretty awesome that what you're doing kind of syncs up with 
the the thing that brought us this this podcast. So this podcast became about actually from a conversation that me and Sashi, who's the producer here, was having because we were thinking about how can we align uh, one of the products we are creating, which is Nicole, which is supposed to be something like how do where we're yeah. trying to create this whole maturity towards self-directed learning. Very cool. Everyone's sort of moving that direction because we see people can just jump on YouTube and learn something quickly. So how do we create something that allows that, but with good curation behind it? Because we have that experience of curation. So when we were talking about that and how do we create value and conversations around it, Talk To Me came about. So on that note, we'll link West End. So if you have any question in the space of innovation, entrepreneurship, and maybe you've read something on how to do that you want to pick West Brain on, just message him. He'll be more than willing to reply to you. So, Wes, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you, Nagash. I really appreciate it. I had an awesome conversation on this one. Thank you so much. This is a good one. I appreciate it. Thank All you. All right. And to everybody out there, happy listening and catch you in the next one.